Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, we're delighted to be joined on the Premier View podcast this week by... Our favourite Clare woman, Lauren Gilfoyle. Uh, you're very welcome, Lauren. <laughs> That's a lovely introduction, your favourite Clare woman. Thank you. <laughs> well, we, do, we wouldn't have too many favourite Clare people in tips, so I suppose uh, <laughs> there might, you mightn't have much competition. Um, but uh, Lauren is from Fecal in County Clare, uh, a physiotherapist by trade. Um, you might give us a bit of background. How, how did uh, you get into physiotherapy or what was the thought process behind uh, doing that course? Um, I suppose from a, all my life really I was uh, I was very much involved in GA and sport and I um, I also had a very deep interest in how the body works um, and how it moves and how we kind of come back from injury so I suppose as uh, my dad got more and more involved with Clare teams and training different teams my brother was playing for Clare you know going to games and I suppose it was a way for me to kind of combine my two interests of sport and then kind of the human body uh, as such and I think probably um, subconsciously I was kind of uh, deciding that it was a way to get into that world um, even though I wasn't male and I wasn't overly gifted um, at the playing side of things um, so that's probably where the interest started um, I also kind of suffered a bit of back pain when I was a teenager um, and I'm the type of person that will, um, will need to understand my problems um, so that probably fueled my interest as well in, in physiotherapy um so yeah that was kind of where uh, the interest started um and then I very much wanted to get into the sports side of things and to hopefully work in sport full-time and I've achieved that which is amazing um so yeah no great um so you, you mentioned your dad your dad obviously played for Clare from 84 to 94 and he went out with a bang scoring two goals against Tip in, in, in 94. But obviously he, he had to, to finish up through injury. Um, was that something you were aware of growing up that, um, that that hip injury ended his career 
and was that a, a focus for you when you were going on uh, to do well, I'd say he might dispute you there now saying it was uh, an injury that ended his career. I think it was more your love man's opinion ended his career. <laughs> we'll get into that later on. <laughs> More of contention there, especially in that it was 94 and they won the All-Ireland in 95. Um, but yeah, like even um, Dad would have obviously picked up a couple of injuries um, throughout his playing career. His hip, uh, as you mentioned, being one of those and he's, he's since had a... a replaced actually in the last couple of years he lasted a long while with it um, and my brother as well so my brother would have actually torn his ACL when he was 14 so I would have been 11 at the time so I would have seen him uh, going through that process I would have kind of tagged along to his physio sessions and it just was something that really interested me um, so yeah I do think their experiences probably had an input we wouldn't have talked massively with that being said now dad would complain massively about his injuries <laughs> and his different things um, so it probably was kind of a topic of discussion um, throughout the years and uh, my uncle as well Michael would have played and sustained many injuries down the line um, so yeah probably that may have uh, influenced most definitely but I think my brother's ACL injury um, when he was a teenager and so was I was probably where it really started because I very much understood I suppose the role a physio plays in that kind of period in someone's life um, and also how important a physio is to the overall workings of a team um, so I'd say his injury probably was was the most influential part of it, yeah. Very good. So um, yeah, we can, you kind of touched on it there, Inj injury prevention is obviously huge in, in the GA at the moment, it's like one of the buzzwords that's going around. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that coaches and managers, do they take enough care on, on the load that's placed on, I suppose, especially young, young players, and, and you've been involved with the tip minors, you, you would have seen um, I suppose, the, the, the pressure and, and the load that those guys are under. Do you think managers take that into account or is there more that we can do in the GA on, on that level? Um, I think it might be a little bit, um, it might be asking too much of, of managers to have a real un, uh, in-depth understanding of loading and kind of how to structure sessions and structure blocks of sessions. So I think this is, um, it, it's important to kind of bring in people around you that do have that skill set or have that know-how and knowledge. So bringing in a good SNC coach, um, having a physio that's very vocal, I suppose, when it comes to management sessions. Um, but I do think at times uh, management can be naive to the impact that um, let's say strenuous training or high intensity training over long periods of time can actually have on athletes um, so yeah I think like in in the olden days <laughs> in times gone by you know training lads hard would have been seen as kind of the way to get them fit the way to kind of build some mental resilience but I think times have progressed and we do now understand that maybe working in shorter bouts or, or pre-planning our sessions and, and the, the loading that's going to happen in those sessions and kind of planning the couple of weeks I suppose as well so it isn't just individualized sessions that we can actually get more from our players um, with regards to, to, to those sessions themselves and I think as well from an injury prevention perspective um, that it's a case of you know not kind of training lads like their dogs and just kind of picking the, the, the couple of guys that make it through those hard sessions that some guys potentially um, aren't going to acclimatize well to those heavy lows I and mean, we've seen it uh, throughout kind of the last two three years but with the tip minors some players are more durable than others and some of those players might be coming from C clubs as a part as, as opposed to players coming from A clubs so guys that will be playing lower division hurling and um, haven't been exposed to that high intensity work so when they come in they're very good hurlers but they just have their bodies haven't adapted to, the, to that amount of training and I think this year probably or last year I should say now put a huge spotlight 
on planning training sessions and planning blocks of training sessions because we had very limited time with players before championship uh, once lockdowns were lifted or dropped um, and I saw firsthand a, a couple of players didn't feature in championship with Tipperary this year because um, of that short run-in they, they went from having very little activity to having a lot of activity and unfortunately they broke down and they didn't have enough time. Um, See so yeah, I do think it's probably asking an awful lot of, of, of managers to, to have that understanding but I think what they should be doing is bringing in people around them or asking for help uh, when, it, when it comes to planning these sessions and then kind of uh, delegating out the responsibility. Yeah, so just talking about load management and, and session planning and I suppose um, player planning, um, I don't know whether you're aware, you, you probably would have come up with the minors, but like the dual player issue is, is a big problem here in, in Tipperary and that a lot of our um, good hurlers are good footballers as well and there'd be a bit of to and fro and there was a there was there was a, a decision taken within tip that only four players from like 14 15 years old could could be dual players what's your opinion from a um, I suppose a physiotherapy or a or a, a strength and conditioning point of view as is a dual player is that is that something that we can we can have going forward or is the day of the dual player at the elite level gone now um, it's, it's 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 multifactorial, really, isn't it? Um, if there is appropriate and adequate uh, communication between managements, then yes, it is doable. Um, but I think the question here is: is underage elite sport very much success driven? Is it is it outcome driven? Are we looking to collect trophies or are we looking to develop players? And I think it it stems back to that. And I suppose, like every like the tip minor hurling manager and the minor football manager that they both want to go out and win um so they're not going to be uh concerned with the other team's uh desires i suppose um so i think it, it stems back to that um and it can be very hard to kind of um have players at training and not see them visibly training I suppose and this is what's needed you know if, if players are going to um to be involved in both pa panels it takes a serious amount of communication to understand not only what that player is doing at county minor level but what they're doing with their schools are they dual players with their schools are they playing dual with their clubs I've had this headache for three years I must have gone through it now how many Panadol packs um because I'm trying to keep track of what they're doing club-wise school-wise and I've, I've often had to kind of be in discussion with schools managers club managers um, because I suppose I'm kind of coming from the outside in I, I don't have any um, I don't have any uh, say biases when it comes to to know to, to Tipperary or to whatever it might be I, I'm, I'm very much there with the, with the athletes health in mind um, but I think yeah, communication is, is key to that um, and motivations for these different setups is key to that so yeah I do think it is possible um, if we were to just look at it from a physical loading perspective but I think it's the circus that kind of surrounds elite sports that probably is making it harder and harder and I know um, from a GEA perspective, obviously, uh, hurling and football are under the one umbrella, and that makes it a little bit easier from a from a fixtures perspective. Like we do see issues with camogie and and, and ladies football, um, but I think it is doable. Just it, it, I think it is quite hard um, in this era because it is very outcome driven. Yeah, um, so you you had said earlier on about about guys that you you'd seen picking up injuries because they had come from. I suppose not not a good training base, but 
we're, we're obviously in, in COVID times. Guys haven't been doing, I suppose, the level of training. Do you expect that when we do start back up, which is now looking like probably possibly the middle of April, that if we go into competition, I suppose it's probably at the elite level, that we'll see more injuries and because we don't, you don't have that training base before you go into the, into the, the game-based scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. And we've already seen that um, last year. There is a little bit of data that's already come out in terms of the Bundesliga, where there was a significant increase in injuries sustained um, in those games after lockdown. And that was only, I think, a six-week uh, drop-off um, initially. And then from a GA perspective, I actually collected data myself with regards to injury from intercounty GA players. And I think it was just over 300 athletes um, at the return to play phase. So in about September time, one third of those sustained an injury um, upon return to play. And 70% of that was non-contact, which means it was our muscular type injuries or our um, training uh, training load related issues, training error related issues. And I would have asked them as well as to kind of reasons why they believe they were injured. Uh, and a huge percentage of them was time away from the game, not act, not having access to appropriate facilities, um, congestion of matches, um, increased intensity of games, uh, lack of recovery. Um, there's a huge multitude of reasons there that, that are modifiable and are changeable and are avoidable. But I suppose uh, there's a lot of factors coming into play here. And as well, remember, athletes... At that point, anyway, we're returning to clubs first um, and we're not going to have the support systems um, at play in club scenarios that we would have at Intercounty. Um, so, yeah, I, I most definitely do think we will um, see an increase in injuries. I remember GA was only back maybe two or three weeks and I'd heard of four Achilles tendon ruptures and that would be so unheard of. Um, in the club that I'm working with at the moment here in Cork, we had an Achilles tendon rupture, an ACL rupture and an ankle dislocation and that happened in three games. Um so yeah, like as much as we want, we can't replicate the demands of competitive sport. Um, down on the pitch with a couple of cones, it's very different from what will actually happen in competitive sport. And then we're adding in um, contact, we're adding in fatigue, um, we're adding in an awful lot of factors. Uh, so hopefully now, I know they haven't announced it just yet, but um, hopefully the lead in two games this time will be a little bit longer. There may not be as much um, congestion of fixtures and hopefully coaches will be paying a little bit more attention to how they're actually um, bringing players back up to that level of play. Yeah. You spoke about there about the uh, say ACLs and Achilles injuries. What do you consider to be the three most common injuries um, that, that GA players pick up? And is there anything that they can do? Is it just a case of, of strength and conditioning and injury prevention to to reduce the incidence of those injuries? Uh, the most common, it would change slightly between hurling and football, um, but hamstring injuries account for about 25% of all GA injuries. Then you've got ankle injuries. Um, and then after that, probably, but it'd be a mixture kind of, as was hurling, you'd be seeing shoulder type injuries. Um, and from a football perspective, it might be thumb injuries. Um, the the one behavioural thing I would change when it comes to GA players and injuries is reporting them earlier um, and getting the very early management correct. I don't know how many times people come into me um, a couple of days after a championship match and they've hurt their hamstring and they've been stretching it and foam rolling it. And I'm like, you've probably made that a lot worse because you just didn't under didn't know what to do in the early stages. Um, 
and yeah and as well as that just uh, I don't know I feel like I, I've started to work in rugby a little bit more and there's definitely a, cha a difference in the culture with injuries in rugby where it's kind of expected that you will be injured so you're just accepting of the fact that you won't be able to train or play and um, whereas in GA there's definitely a mentality of I'm playing this whether my leg's hanging off or not <laughs> um, so I think yeah just the the, the behaviour around kind of acceptance of injury which I know is easier said than done and um, from a prevention perspective like it depends really on the on the type of injury so for hamstring for example um exposure to high speed running is, is paramount so that's actually getting out and getting very fast uh meters under the belt consistently throughout the week um, and that's so our body adapts to that type of running that we're not only getting exposed to that in a game scenario um so yeah it, it, it depends really on the type of injury um but yeah the, there's there definitely is a couple of things that we can be uh, addressing and modifying depending on on the issue at hand. Yeah. I, I, just when you mentioned hamstrings, I, I don't know. Did you watch the watch the toughest trade? But when um, Michael Murphy went to Claremont, I think it was, and he did he they, they stacked him up against the rugby players in Claremont. He he was up there on every attribute that that the rugby player was, except for hamstrings. His hamstrings were by far a lot weaker than. Than, than those guys. Is there some? Is there something I suppose from from a juvenile level up that that we can be doing in the GA to make sure that that like Murphy is obviously one of the best footballers, if not the best footballer in, in in the country. And to go out there and them to tell him that he's up there as a professional athlete only for his hamstrings. You know, is is there something better we can be doing from an early age to to strengthen those? Um, increasing our eccentric hamstring strength is definitely one feature and like a Nordic hamstring curl is a very simple uh, way to achieve that so that's where you're down on your knees and you're falling forwards and you're controlling your descent with your hamstrings. I actually saw Podge Collins do it a couple of years ago at an event I was working at and he just astounded everyone with his eccentric strength. It was incredible. Um, but that's one thing. So that I'm pretty sure that's part of the GA15 warm-up. Um, so eccentric strength. So basically when we're sprinting and our, our legs and our knees are coming up in front of us, that's our, our hip flexors and our quads creating an awful lot of force. But we need our hamstrings to be able to control that. Otherwise, we're going to start running like the German army, <laughs> kicking the legs out. Um, so that's eccentric strength where the hamstrings are actually getting longer, but we're, we're generating force. So that is replicated in something like a Nordic hamstring curl. Um, so getting those into in, into kids and, and teenagers early on. That being said, very, very um, intense exercise. We don't need to be doing too many. I'm pretty sure it's something like two sets of eight uh, once a week. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I'd have to, to clarify that. So we don't need to do an awful lot of them, but um, it's something that we can do that has been proven to reduce the incidence um, of hamstring injuries, but as well just in, including high speed running into our sessions um, and kind of making that a, a point of our training session. So even if we are kind of playing championship at the weekend, making sure maybe on the Monday or the Tuesday night that we're doing some sprint work as part of that session, that we're continuing to allow the body to adapt to that kind of high speed running. So the more we adapt, the more we get used to something, the more we tolerate it, the more stress and strain is needed to actually break down that structure. Um, if you go back 20 years, um... I suppose strength and conditioning is something that wouldn't have been heard. Mm. You would have had maybe a physio the day of, the day of games. Now, strength and conditioning is is that that whole area has grown to be huge. And um, now you see even our own club here now has employed a, a, a full time physio for for training and for games. Roll forward ten years. What do you expect to see within your profession as regards to GA? What 
what strides can can we make to to, to benefit the player? Um, that's a really good question. I think yeah, I don't across the board. It definitely isn't the case that um, physios are present at all times, and I, I honestly would at least make a, a case for there being more of a need for physios to be at training sessions and at games. We can definitely have more of an impact on injury and and, and the progression of, of, of recovery if we're seeing athletes before they actually perform. We're, we're very limited into what we can actually do on game day. Um, I think integration with SNT coaches is going to be massive. That they, I really am of the opinion that a physio, a sports physio anyway, and an SNT coach are very much on the same spectrum. Just we work with the athletes that are injured down here. We get them so far along that spectrum and then we start to see them reintegrate back into collective training uh, with the help of the SNC coach. Um, so I do see those two roles kind of being, not one and the same, but definitely being an awful lot more collaborative. Um, I suppose, what else do I think? It's a good question. I hadn't considered that before. Um, yeah, after that, I'm not sure. God, you're after getting the, the thought process going there. Where would I like to see it going? We have your stumps. We have your stumps. <laughs> no, uh, we'll move on. Um, so we, we had Fergal Horgan on um, there two weeks ago, and we asked him about his his um, his game day, or what, what he did on the day of the game. And he, he more or less treated it like he, he was a player. He, go off for a walk, kind of spend some time with himself the day of a game. As a physio, do, do you get invested in the team that you're that, that you're involved with? Are you are you do you get nervous for them um the day of a game? Is what what's your your preparation um on game day, on a big game day? Um well I definitely get invested and I think uh some of my behaviour after beating Claire will will be very suggestive of that. <laughs> um yeah, no, I, huh? Tell us more. <laughs> um, so what was it? 2018, the first year of the Round Robin series. Um, we That was the year Tipperary were playing four weekends in a row. The seniors didn't do too well. Um, the minor herders yeah. did. We won two of four games. Um, so our last game, uh, the fourth round, uh, we needed to win. And even if we won, it was still up to the other teams because we had to buy it uh, by the next weekend. Um, and my first cousin was actually a member of the Clare minor panel. And we were playing them in Central Stadium. So we were very hyped up. Uh, we'd after being caught in the hop by um, Waterford in Limerick. I don't know if you remember, that was the day of the ghost goal. Um, we got beaten in, in uh, injury yeah, time. Huh? It was no goal. Keep we're winning by... <laughs> <laughs> we were winning the minor. I think the minors were winning by 10 or 11 points. Um, and we suffered a couple of injuries. I know there was a discussion afterwards that we were pulling off players. We really weren't because we were thinking we had another game to play. Um, but yeah, we, we got beaten in that game. And I remember kind of going to the, the, the dressing room afterwards and the lads pretty much thinking their championship was over. Um, and just having to remind them that we, like, we're still in this. So we went anyway and we were all geared up for, for playing Clare in Simple Stadium the following week. And as I was saying, my first cousin was, was a member of the Clare panel. And it was already dubious enough that I was involved in Tipperary. Like, you know, we're a very Clare hurling family. Um, so to even be involved was like, oh God, how dare you? Um, but uh, yeah, so that that game started. And I honestly, like, that was... Um, I couldn't have been less of a Clare person that day. It just didn't kind of enter my mind that, I, I, you know, I, I would normally want Clare to win. But anyway, we went down and uh, we beat Clare, I think, by five or six points, maybe. And maybe about 45 minutes in, uh, Conor O'Dwyer, uh, Cashel, cornerback, uh, got sent off for hitting one of the Clare players. And I was just so consumed by, oh no, we're down to 14. God, what's going to happen? 
Um, match went on anyway and we won and off we went into the middle of the pitch delighted because Joe we'd have been achieved what we'd set out to achieve it was kind of what was out of our hands now what was going to happen delighted got out and celebrating all the with all the boys um, and then afterwards uh, I, I bumped into my my, my auntie the, the mother of um, I think it was a man she was one of the aunties there. there was a couple of them there and uh, how's Fionn how's the cousin of Fionn and I was like what happened Fionn Fionn was the one that was hit <laughs> when, Car- when Connor was sent off. I hadn't even, I didn't enter my mind. I hadn't paid any attention to what Claire Blair it was. Um, but at this point now, because Claire had lost, they were knocked out. And I was secretly delighted, but not because of Claire, but because Tipperary had qualified. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm definitely very, very much invested um, in, in Tipperary. Mike, did you notice you said the word we there a lot? Oh, hundred percent. <laughs> oh no, absolutely. And I, I, I kind of at the end of that year, um, I would have been very aware of uh, kind of the environment that you're in, and, and it not really mattering who the team is, what the team is, what the crest is, who we're beating, who we're playing. Yeah. Um, it very much was we, and I think even over the last couple of years, everyone assumes I'm Tipperary because I'm so invested. But that's just down to being welcomed, being such a part of that team. And I remember. God, I think it was Tommy Dunn that year, was it Paul Collins or someone going off on a rant about Claire and how much they hate Claire. And then at the end of it, it was like, sorry, Lauren. And it's like, rant. Um, so no, very, very much a part of the group. And even like with the Tipperary senior footballers who I would have worked with, very much um, wanting to see them progress, even if they were playing Claire. Because it's just, I, I know the effort that they've put in. I know the guys personally. Um, and I, yeah, I just will be delighted. But back to the question. <laughs> question match day um so yeah match day I'm probably um ahead of the players a lot uh I'll be arriving at the pitch I'll be one of the first so Tom Hassett was our kit man to me Vera we would have been first um but he would have been first at whatever venue we would be playing at um and yeah so if, I would imagine like if, it, if it's a game in Simple Stadium for example we'll meet in Dr Morris and I'll set up I'll have my table brought in so before the game we'll do a lot of our tapings and strappings because it doesn't really matter when they actually occur so it's good to get them done good and early and um, so the lads will be gone out for a puck around kind of just a bit of a chit chat maybe have a couple of sandwiches um, and I'll have brought in whatever players need to be taped or strapped or potentially assessed um, but coming up to match day that that, that, that wouldn't be the case so yeah, they'd all be brought in, assessed, or taped, I should say. Um, after that, then the players would kind of be making their way down to Semple Stadium. So at that point, I'll have, be, I'll have brought down whatever I need brought down, my table, um, my ice bag, uh, my ice box. My, I have four or five bags with me at, at, at any stage. So I'll go down and set up um, in Semple Stadium in the, in the medical room. Um, the lads will be getting changed in the dressing room. And then a couple might pop in and out to me. They might want something taped or they might want Vaseline or whatever it might be. Or maybe some guys, I know there, there definitely was a couple of players that kind of use that time as like a, a period to kind of psychologically gear up for the game. Um, so from a physio perspective, it probably wasn't essential, but if, if the time is there, they might come in and that's kind of a, a place where they can get away from the hustle and bustle of the dressing room and just come into this quiet space. Um, after that, then the players will, will go out for a, a puck around. I'll go out with them because at this point, you will know, be double checking tapings. Are they too tight? Are they tight enough? Are they um, offering enough stability? Some players at this point may want a taping or someone might get caught or Vaseline might be wanted. Um, so there'll be a couple of things that you'll just be checking up on because now they're in that environment, they'll know if they're happy or not with whatever intervention you've applied. 
um, the players will go back in then and then I'm kind of getting ready pitch side so I have like a, a big medical bag that have, would kind of have everything in it um, but I don't need everything um, I, I'd every say I actually have a small bag that I, I'll bring onto the pitch um, so I'm just going to be getting those things sorted out you'll have met the the medical teams of the ambulance um, staff and just you're going to go over and introduce yourself to those you'll be designated signals to know if, if an ambulance is needed or a stretcher is needed um, and yeah, at that point, you're just readying yourself on the side of the pitch and um, waiting for the game to start. You'll get a couple of water bottles. Obviously, it was a little bit different with COVID in, in terms of, of having different pieces of equipment ready. Um, but yeah, then you're just getting ready pitch site. Um, and then you're very much immersed in the game and then kind of waiting to see what, what happens. Um, Half time can be frantic. Um, there'll be players you need to check in on. Something might have happened in the first half that you just need to address. Someone might be coming in saying my ankle's a bit sore, you take that. Um, it's a whole host of things that that, that can happen at halftime, um, and yeah, it's just it depends on the game itself as to what actually occurs during the match. Um, some games can be very quiet; other games can be mental. This year, the the Munster Minor Final, I was actually only out of hospital about a week, and uh, Jesus, I don't know how many k I ran in that game. It was crazy, um, the amount of times I was in and out of that pitch. Um, but yeah, it, it depends really on the game itself. Very good. Um, you've been involved in a variety of sports. Um, you've been with the, the women's under-20 rugby team. You're obviously with the Cork Con men's rugby team. Um, the Tip Miners, have, as we've spoken about, you, you've done time with the Tip Senior Footballers for two years, the Camogie um, Senior Team. So how, how different is your approach in treating these players um, when, they're, when they're injured? Is there, is there a difference or is it just everyone is a is a person so to speak and and you just treat them all the same or is there a difference between um, I think you kind of have to treat everyone differently and I don't even mean that between like rugby versus hurling versus football um it's yeah everyone has their own way of dealing with an injury everyone has their own life stress going on everyone else has their own motivation to train and play so I think everyone has to be treated very much individually and that would have actually been a reason why I went back to study um, sports psychology. Um, I think with underage athletes, I love working with with younger athletes because at this point they haven't um, they haven't established bad habits. They haven't um, they haven't. I suppose they're, they're much more open to kind of what I have to say in terms of helping them. They haven't kind of done it this way all their life, so they're going to going to keep doing it that way. Um, so that's definitely why I enjoy working with underage athletes maybe that little bit more um when it comes to let's say the, the different sports there definitely has been a period of learning for me in terms of what would constitute kind of removing a player in hurling might be very different from a, a player in, in rugby so obviously um we have a lot more contact um, and collision in rugby so I've had to upscale in terms of my on-pitch assessment for that um, and obviously my um, off-pitch like uh, clinic assessment and return to play rehab because the demands are so very different so like even now I'm watching rugby an awful lot more closely in terms of kind of well, what does the, the the second row do that the fullback doesn't and, and then allowing that to kind of guide my, my rehab I suppose in GA it's a lot more generic um a cornerback isn't going to be doing anything that's majorly different from a midfield in terms of skill set and um, set pieces and whatnot um but yeah no I think um 
across the board, every athlete needs to be taken in whatever way they decide to cope with their injury. And that can be very different um, depending, as I said, kind of how much they're invested in their sport um, other things they have going on, their personality. Um, so yeah, it can has, it has to, to, to be successful. I think it has to be very individual. In terms of facilities for physios, uh, what would you like to see in GA grounds across the country? Obviously, uh, I know from my own club here in Cat White, physio, um, there isn't even a physio room now. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, I mean, so what, what kind of facilities do you see or do, do club grounds need going forward? Um, I remember one day I was down in the new Kerry GA Centre of Excellence and I had to go from there to Dr. Morris and I walked in and it's like, <laughs> the contrast here yeah. is significant. They have a physio suite, like it's on the, it's on the wall, physio suite, and I'm just like... <laughs> I have an I office. Have <laughs> Oh, it was lovely. Like, it was so well kitted out and then having to go back to just a dressing room and Dr. Mars, like, it does the job, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I suppose, yeah, it would be nice to kind of have, like, I think like, we do set up in dressing rooms and shower areas is, is, a, is a key uh, feature in my physio career in terms of setting up because it, it often, more often than not, is the only available space. Um, and then you're rushing in after a match to clear out your stuff before the lad's going for a shower. Um, so it would be nice to have um, a room that's, that's somewhat warm because a lot of the time those dressing rooms aren't warm. That's well lit. Um, I, you have to, like... Especially Dr. Morris, so you're like, you're just in lads. So like, will you stand that way? So I actually have the light to come down to see what's actually happening. Um, so yeah, warm and, and and brightly lit would be nice. Um, but I suppose after that, like there's very little, like a mirror would be nice because that helps in terms of um, demonstrating movements and, and highlighting maybe movement deficiencies. Um, it would be lovely to have a gym scenario. So I'm blessed that I have that down here in Cork Con. They have a very well kitted out gym. So um, I'd say a lot of the time in, in, in Dr. Morris, I would have had to describe to, to the lads what I want them to do because I just didn't have the facilities to be able to show them. In a perfect scenario, I'd be in the gym actually coaching the, the players through their rehab but we don't have the facilities for that nor do we have the time and um, so we're very limited in terms of the time that we can spend the players so that's one benefit to COVID at the moment I can get in um, and spend a lot more time with, with the guys so yeah some sort of gym setup what would, would be lovely um, because physio has definitely moved away from just being a hands-on uh, profession it, it, it really isn't anymore and I think if anyone is still stuck in that kind of era we're probably um, letting our players down in some regards um, and yeah, after that, like even just like an area to chill out, relax, um, something that like, I don't know, there has been plans for, for Thurless and, and different yeah. kind of upgrades and whatnot, but that would be nice. Um, I know in, in, in Munster, the, there is a chill out room where there's bean bags and, uh, and playstations and bunk beds and the whole lot just to chill out because that's really important as well, especially kind of for the guys that are injured. Because um, if, if they aren't training um, and training is, is ongoing, they're probably just camped out in the dressing room um, or maybe trying to go in and coax Pat for a cup of tea. Um, but that's probably left to me to get. If we, if we put PlayStations into Dr. Morris, they'll always be injured, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the moment, you're currently part of an international research team investigating the psychological effects of COVID-19 um, and subsequent cancellation of sport in high-performance athletes. How much of an impact has COVID had on athletes, especially in the GA, in your opinion? Um, it 
has affected them. So we've seen their well-being scores reduced in comparison to what they would have been. Um, but they've actually dealt with it quite well. So I would have looked at well-being, resilience, coping strategies, um, motivation, emotional intelligence, all these different constructs. Um, and they've dealt with it quite well. And it's comparable to the Olympic cohort here in Ireland. So we would have looked at the, the group as a whole, would have looked at the Olympic athletes that are qualified or are in search of qualification or the professional rugby players here in Ireland. Um, so our studies would have differed slightly depending on the sample, um, but they are very much uh, similar in terms of, uh, of their well-being and um, their coping strategies is an interesting thing, very um, adaptive. So we can have adaptive or maladaptive coping strategies. So kind of avoidance type strategies would be negative or will be seen as negative and, and they're, they are at the bottom of the list. So our athletes would have been quite positive in terms of their coping strategies. And then we would have seen that result, um, seen that in their in their well-being. So with like resilience is kind of where my main focus is at the moment. And we have two types of resilience. We have resilience that um, we kind of can, can continue to function at the level that we're functioning at. Um, and then we can have what we call um, emergent resilience, which is where our well-being drops because the stress has just become so much. It, it's very large in terms of magnitude. Our well-being drops and then it actually comes back up. It, it, it regains it to normal levels, if not exceeding that. Um, and that's the pathway of resilience that we're, we're seeing. Um, we aren't even seeing kind of that uh, jump back up to normal just yet because that would occur normally when the stressor is gone and the stressor definitely isn't gone here and um, we're seeing COVID is still a major issue in sport is severely affected by that um, but in terms of kind of a general outlook our, our athletes have done really well and um, I was delighted to get over 600 inter-county GA athletes um, and as part of that we would have looked at injury as well amongst other um, other factors in collaboration with the GPA and WGPA um, so yeah as a whole doing really well but I think we'll see things improve once we do get back to normal and we'll see that kind of post-traumatic post growth um, as a result of kind of enduring the stressor and um, so yeah, it's been challenging so athletes do have um, a kind of a collection of resources that they would normally go to when they are faced with something that's adverse or is a stressor so it's like injury or retirement or deselection or these are all things that athletes kind of expect to happen and they have their list of resources and one of those would be social support so that is going to your physio speaking to your sports psychologist talking to your friends and family and typically we would see that that would be really helpful and that would be very much correlated with well-being but in this instance that hasn't been illustrated at all there, there, there's no correlation between social support um, and well-being and that's because everyone is going through the COVID-19 crisis so it's new to sports psychologists, it's new to physios, it's new to everyone. Um, so no one kind of had that knowledge to impart and to kind of reassure athletes early days because we, the, 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 the knowledge or the information wasn't there. And um, so that definitely was an interesting finding. It's not surprising, but um, it definitely is kind of a, a shift away from what we normally would see when it comes to stressful situations. You have previously been part of, or maybe possibly still are part of the National Youth Committee. Um, you might give us a rundown on, on the GAU forum and probably the major takeaway you took from, from your involvement in that. Yeah, so I was involved with that over six years. So I'm only allowed to serve two terms, unfortunately. It's like the American presidency, you can only do two terms. Um, so I would have started my involvement with that back when I was 19. Um, I actually presented at GEA Congress. Um, and as a result of that, I was invited to serve on the National GA Youth Committee. So it's similar to like the Fixtures Committee, the Disciplinary Committee. It's, um, it's just another subsidiary of the of, the, of Central Council. Um, and our role, I suppose, specifically was to engage with the youth 
membership of the GEA. Um, so to kind of facilitate a, a dual uh, uh, channel of communication so that the, let's say that the organisation as a whole were able to communicate with younger members, but equally those younger members could feedback uh, to Central Council and to the kind of the, the powers that be. So the whole person or the whole point of the, the youth forum was to use that time to collect information um, and pass it to those that kind of can do something about that. And then we also, because that involved maybe three, four, five, six, six hundred people, depending on the year that was um, coming to Crow Park, we also used it as a time to offer the youth information. So we would have ran many workshops covering all things from physical preparation, injury prevention, nutrition, uh, psychological intervention, um, inclusivity and equality within the association, refereeing, like we covered literally everything. There were amazing days and um, it was a privilege to be involved with them. Um, but we used that time to collect uh, feedback from younger members that was directly given back to the GA president and was presented at each su subsequent um, Congress, uh, like general Congress, um, and it was nice to see some of the um, the different counties actually addressing some of the issues, or at least referencing some of those issues. So, like obviously, you have to take information from a lot of uh, sources in order to make these decisions. But it was nice to kind of offer them a, a useful um, outlook. And for the last maybe two, I think it was the last two youth forums that we had. We actually had youth congress where there was votes taken, um, and we had John Horan. Um, we had the LGFA president, we had Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Woods, the Camogie president pre present at those actual days. So it would have involved um, kind of discussion, uh, roundtable discussion, a vote, and also kind of an explanation from those presidents as to why those rules are in place or, or, or what kind of factors or barriers might be in the way of changing those rules. So I think it kind of, it was nice to have that that, that kind of interaction between the younger population um, and, and, and the powers that be. So yeah, we, we have achieved a lot with the with the youth forum. And uh, it was definitely an attractive um, an attractive event because it was you know, taking place in Crow Park. We even had a free taking workshop one day out in the pitch. Um, it was class. I, I loved them. Half of the time, I was just trying to organise an event that I know I'd love. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was cool. We had some. We've had some amazing uh, speakers down through the years. Like the the people that have bought into it have been amazing. Like God, you had. Cora Staunton, Kiran Kikenny, David Goff, I've got everyone, like the two Johnny, like we had literally everyone that's anyone in the GA was probably invited to a youth forum, um, which was great to see. Very good. Um, so earlier on, you mentioned that there was, I suppose, issues between the Camogie and Ladies Football Association around, I suppose, and that's more or less around fixtures, because we've seen it here in TIP where all of the wires had to play two games, possibly in one day. And like, that's a club level here, even in Tipperary, because uh, we have a good, Ladies Football Club here and and the Cartier, the Camogie Club that are associated with us and that's happened I mean they've had to play on the same weekend or within 24 hours of each other it, would you like to see the Camogie and Ladies Football Associations come under the GA umbrella or, or especially I suppose that they need to work better together uh, rather than, than against each other yeah I think it, it it's baffling at times as to how some decisions can be arrived at. Like, uh, you'd wonder, uh, like, whose interests do you have at heart here? 
um, in a lot of instances. And I think even last year, when you look at the, the care camogie club and football club that were, were asked to play two finals in one weekend, I think it was, um, especially when there was a free weekend the following weekend or something, like it was just baffling. Um, I would like to see them come under the one organisation. I know um, even from the youth forum, like that would have been a question we would have asked and it would have been an overwhelming yes, let's bring them together. And a lot of people wouldn't even be aware that they're separate organisations. Um, I suppose even, I would like to see them come together, but even to kind of still remain, I suppose, uh, different columns under the same house, if that makes sense. Because I think if it was uh, absorbed into just one organisation with one overseeing um, committee or, or board or whatever it might be, uh, the individual kind of barriers that exist in each sport might be lost somewhat. Um, but even, I suppose, if it's possible like to, to kind of, uh, build a relationship where kind of weekly meetings are a thing of that's just done you know um, and understanding that players want to play both sports and if it's possible let's make it happen you know I think a lot of the time and it's definitely referenced sometime and when this discussion is brought up that um everyone's kind of looking after themselves and, and just wanting their own kind of look after their own ship um but I think yeah we have to recognize that it's the same players playing both um both sports um, and yeah, we, we're already seeing kind of numbers dwindling. Like when we look at the playing population of Kamogi versus LGFA, um, there's a stark contrast there. Um, but even from the perspective of kind of the two organisations joining the GA, we're going to see access to, to facilities that little bit more. Um, we're going to see more one club models. And I know we have some of them across the country already. And like it, they only seem to be having kind of positive um, outcomes. So yeah, I, I just, I, I, I have yet to, to meet someone with a, a good enough reason to keep them separate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Larry McCarthy obviously has taken over as the new GA president. Um, he has made that a, a priority. And he also spoke on, I suppose, the imbalance of, of women in key administrative roles um, within the GA. What's your view on that situation and, and how should it be addressed? Um, God, I'm not sure. Like... I think you see the 20 by 20 campaign and it's can't see, can't be. So it was nice to see the likes of um, Kennedy, Tracy Kennedy um, in Cork having such a prominent position. Um, and I've seen her speak an awful lot um, about being a female in that position, but something she would have also spoken about is how she never saw anyone coming after her. Um, that it's great for her to, to have held the Cork GA chairperson's position, but to not see someone kind of coming in the ranks behind her. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's of huge importance that there are more females, um, even if not just to just like to, to broaden the opinions to like. A, you know, I think women have an awful lot to offer, even like from my own experience, being a female in a very male dominated environment when it comes to, let's say, physiotherapy um, just seeing kind of the different outlooks that can be brought by bringing in different genders, because that brings in different life experience. Um, I think it is really important. I'm just it's the getting in, it's the joining the club initially is where the barrier is. Um, so I would have spoken previously there about speaking at uh, at Congress. I was the only female, I was 19 years old, the only female that spoke at Congress that year. Like not even, like as in full stop, there, there was no other female. And to be 19 years of age and to kind of have that, you know, I suppose it was it was quite nice at the time, but still it's a bit baffling. Um, and then to look down and see like very few females, maybe a handful. Um, 
but then like even say at that point to kind of uh, not even be acknowledged by Claire that at that time you know like that's where like you you need to be nurturing those those women that are trying to kind of stake a claim and kind of make them feel more included they want to be included so let's kind of welcome them to the club in some regards um like even I've had experience working um with the National Geo Youth Committee for six years, yet I wouldn't know where to start if I went to a county convention. I just, yeah. who do, like, I, I would feel out of place completely. Um, so I, I, at the same time, I don't think gender quotas is um, a place to start. Um, people should be there on merit and I'll 100% uh, back that. Um, it's just trying to, I don't know, the, the disconnect between kind of the, the higher echelons of the GA as an organization and then the actual kind of ground level kind of county convention, club convention, there definitely is kind of a, a, a difference in the two and I'm not sure how to actually um, bridge that gap. Yeah, well, I, I have to agree with you. I was at um, Congress in 2018 down in 2019 in Wexford and Tracy Kennedy spoke and she was one of the most impressive speakers at, at, convention, at Congress that year. And I've since followed her on Twitter and I find her to be an exceptional um, mm. GA administrator. And I, I hope that she is not lost to the association as, as can happen, I suppose, when she's reached the, the pinnacle of Cork GA. And I, I would like to see Crow Park take her in for some role because I think she has so much so much to offer. But I did um, a straw poll before, before we came on of, of in, in my division, we're, we're West Tipperarian, with 15 clubs, there's five female secretaries, and there's a couple of PROs, but there's no chairperson um, who, who's female. And now, we did have one last year, Cashel actually had a, a female chairperson, but it, females don't seem to go into the chairperson role and, and mm. within, the, within the GA, and um, you'd see a lot of secretaries. Um, yeah, and that's dirty even playing into to like gender stereotypes in a way. And I think, it's personally speaking now, um, you kind of, I think women are probably a little bit more aware of their limitations and are conscious of kind of going for a position that they may or may not feel they're qualified for. Um, and in some instances, maybe they are, but I feel like they <laughs> perhaps don't have the confidence to kind of go and, and be the the person that is leading the club or, or leading the community that they're, they're, they're content with having a role. Um, and yeah, that's something I'd like to see change, but I don't know, is that just a, a gender kind of characteristic? Um, but it's interesting that it's uh, secretaries that, that we're seeing. Um, but even, I, I, like at times I'm very vocal on social media and a lot of the time you, you, you can have, um, like you can try to put your opinion across and like from personally anyway, it's very much trying to improve a situation or to help someone. Um, but then you are getting kind of faced with sexist remarks or, you know, comments that a man would never receive. And I think if you, if you, if you don't put yourself in those positions, you're not going to get those remarks. So potentially is that a factor here at play too? Um, I don't know the answer to it. Um, I wish I did. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely a lot of barriers there. It's just how do we overcome them? And it's a pity that we've had Tracy come and go and obviously she had to leave as a result of just GA rules. Um, but to not see someone like her on the way behind her, especially when she's paved um, such a path. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, just on, on girls in sport, um, like we spoke about the, the LGFA probably have one of the, the 
biggest numbers now playing is one of the fastest growing sports in, in the country. Camogie has certainly taken off again um, in the last t- 10 years. And what, what would, would we still see girls walking away from sport um, in, in their teenage years? Is there something that more that can be done to keep girls involved in, in, in sport? I think there's a couple of factors. Um, like even, like it's it's bad to say, but like I went from being involved with the Tipperary Senior Camogie team to the Tipperary Minor Hurling team and it was stark, the resources that were offered to 15 and 16 year old lads that weren't being offered to grown women that had played for Tipperary for 10 years. Um, I think resources and just the environment that's created is a massive thing. Like even the coaches that you might see, coaches want to coach men's teams. Um, the best coaches go to, to towards male sports. Um, and even like that's something I would have experienced um, as a player it is poor coaching and poor management and poor interaction and communication with players and just an environment that's created that you just don't want to be in. Um, and that, that, that's just from personal experience. I think that's one factor. And then a second factor is, yeah, just resources and, and especially when it kind of comes to county level when you're when you're when you're trying when you're putting so much on the line, like you're you're spending so much time traveling to and from training and making all these sacrifices that you're not getting fed or um you're being put on pitches that are in the back of so nowhere, you're like in poor conditions, terrible facilities. Um so I think like a very tangible thing we can do is increase or improve those resources. Um and then we're creating a nice environment. If we don't create create a nice environment, we're not going to keep girls in sport. Um, and like I was lost to sport as a result of some of the kind of environments that I was put into. Um, so I think that's that's really important. And I know the LGFA have put on a huge number of, um, of projects. And I know Orla Farmer is involved in, in many of those. Um, and that is hugely about just kind of improving the resources, uh, making it easy, kind of giving a toolbox to people to, to use. Um, and I think that's a really good starting place. Um, you're always going to have people uh, kind of being lost to sport once you reach a, a certain age. Like I was like, Technically, I was lost to sport. I stopped playing. Um, I just found my my interest was still in sport, just in a different perspective or in a different role within sport. Um, so like there always is going to be that that, that um drop off at a certain age, just when people go to college, realize what kind of what they want to do with their life, what they want to be. Um, but I think a really easy place to start is just looking at resources, um, the effectiveness of coaches, or even just the um kind of just looking at the, the coach's behaviour and, and the environment that, that the coach creates and then trying to eliminate some of those very easy factors that isn't even like related to money in, in a lot of regards. Um, but again, a very hard question. I'm not yeah, going to have an easy answer. Um, do, do labels annoy you, as in um, ladies' football and camogie as opposed to just women's hurling and women's yeah. football? Is, is that we had, um, we had a, I remember I had a camogie trainer a couple of years ago whenever we go off running it'd be come on ladies and I was just like oh god <laughs> uh, but yeah it does um, even like you see kind of segments and papers are online women in sport like why can't it just be sports <laughs> like I just don't understand and I know there has to be a certain drive for like you know increasing um, media coverage and, and whatnot. but when can we just have rugby and it's men this week and it's women next week. Like, why is it the women's team? Um, and then it's just the, the Irish team versus the women's Irish team. And it's, yeah, it's just a pity that 
that we we do have to label it. I don't know. It kind of it, it, it's indicative of of it kind of oh this is a different level. Like it isn't just a different gender. It's like oh this is a a level below the men's team or, or whatever it might be. Um, I don't play football. Um, so yeah, I just I wish it was just called football. I'm not sure kind of the need for ladies football. I know Camogie. I'm perfectly fine with because it's just the name of the the game. You know, it's um women's hurling. I don't know would that make any difference. Um. Yeah, ladies getting football. I don't know. It just, I think it's just a whole kind of. As opposed to gentlemen's ladies football. <laughs> gentlemen's <laughs> football, men's football. Yeah. But yeah, just like women in sport. I don't know. It's just the longer we kind of segregate the coverage, um, the the more it's going to be segregation in real life or something. Uh, so just moving away a little bit from sport, you have a very prominent media career development. Is that something that you always aspire to or is it something that you've fallen into and, and grabbed hold of? Uh, completely fallen into. Um, I actually worked with Spin South West when I was in college and I had no intention whatsoever because if I did it would have been a great start. Um, I actually left there to, to go to, to Dublin um, to start working as a physio. Um, but no, it's... Uh, it fell into my, my lap, really. Um, Pundit Arena, who are going from strength to strength now, would have approached me back in the end of 2015. Um, they were a very small nine-man business at the time, and they, they wanted to kind of expand their GA coverage. And I suppose I had been, I had a, a, a participated in Miss Ireland at this time. So, and I would have been very vocal about GA on Twitter. So I think it was just kind of an easy fit for them. Um, I had no experience. I remember, it's gas looking back now, the very first interview I did was with Shane McGrath outside Semple Stadium and it, if it ever surfaces. Um, and like, he would have been starting his media career at the time too, so he would have grasped every opportunity. But like, I look back now and like, we'd be very good friends from the, from the minors and it's just like, let's just never speak about that again. Yeah, um, that, uh, material. We're, we're, we're going to have to look for that, yeah. But um so that's yeah, I just kind of started and like that wouldn't have been paid. I just love going to matches. So like yeah, I'll go to Thurlis on a Sunday or I'll go to Parky Cueve or I'll go to Galway or wherever it might be. So that's kind of where it started and then it kind of grew legs a little bit. So that was the first year of it. No one really knew who we were. Second year people were kind of lining up because they knew the Punch Arena videos or whatever. Um, and then I just kind of kept taking opportunities. So in that second year, Pundit Arena would have been the media partners for the Fenway Hurling Classic. Um, and they would have provided uh, funds for, for Brian Barry to, to go um, and cover the event. But I was kind of like, maybe I'll go too. Um, so I actually paid for my own flights, booked time off work, didn't get paid for it. So like I fully funded it myself, but I just knew that kind of there was a door open there for me. So if it was pushed, it, I could definitely get in there. Um, and yeah, just kind of, it was opportunities like that where you start to network and you kind of build that that, that profile for yourself. Um, the following year then, I, I applied for a job with Red FM um, in Cork here. Didn't get it, but um, they were very impressed with my um, desire to kind of get into this industry. So they actually trained me up and I was taken on as a part-time um, employee, which was amazing. Um, so it's just little things like, like that. And I suppose the fact that I had physio as my primary income meant that I could kind of work and not get paid because it didn't like it didn't massively impact me. I was still getting an income. Um, but I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I'll go to any game. I remember as a result of Pondy Dream, I got to go to the Ulster football final in Clonus. That was so 
home experience or getting to go to the um the Galway homecoming in in Pierce Stadium and things like that um but yeah it's definitely just something that's kind of gathered momentum over the last few years to the point where kind of balls.ie came looking for me um because of the social media coverage that I do um and it got to the point where one day I um I had the opportunity of covering France and Ireland in the under 26 nations or I had one patient in private practice and I was like I don't I don't want to be left with that um, decision any longer. Um, so at that point, I kind of thought I had enough going and I was presenting the Littlewood Ireland coverage at the time as well um, of the Camogie League. So I said, it's now or never. So I actually left my very good full-time employment with Jan Casey and Nina. And I'm so grateful for everything that he's done for me. Um, but I felt at that time it was kind of now or never. I have no qualifications in media. I need to ride the wave as long as it's going. Um, and it, it also kind of benefited my physio work too, um, especially in the tip um, over the last kind of year or so too, in that now that I don't have a nine to five, like I, I make my physio role my full time job. So um, that's kind of where like my priority will always be the, the, the physio role that I'm in. Um, it just means that I have an awful lot more time. So I'll get to Central Stadium two hours before I need to be there because I have the time to do that. And like it, it allows me more time with players. Um, but yeah, from a media perspective, I'm just kind of having the crack doing what I'm doing. Um, I definitely prefer physio. Um, very easy for me. You can either commentate or interview someone about what they've did, done or, or did and, and observe it from the press box, or you can be a part of it. Um, and nothing will, will, will beat, you know, having that winning feeling on the sideline in Thurlis or um, being on the sideline in Crow Park and kind of feeling the victories but also suffering the defeats too it just um it's it's a very different feeling and as well and it's the, the collective element of it as well is really important like that's something I've missed with COVID is not being able to go and see the gang you know and Dr Morris three times a week and just having the general chit chat you know like that that's a huge part of it from like my social life as well you know and um, you mentioned social media and you have a very big social media presence and um, great tutorial on concussion today actually <laughs> But social media can be, um, I suppose, a double-edged sword. And um, have you had any experience of abuse, or uh, have you have you managed to steer clear of it? Um, I don't think I get that much. I will get the odd um, message here or there, but um, I don't really take it to heart. It's obviously not nice to kind of receive a, a message, but um, like I think my approach to social media is I want to help people um I I wouldn't be I suppose it isn't very centered on me and maybe my appearance it's very much centered on me and, and my knowledge and trying to like to help other people um using the profile that I've built so I think I, I probably don't get what other people might get as as, as a result of that but I, I definitely do at times um and I think it's definitely more reflective of, of that person's mindset than it is of my content. So I, I have to remind myself of that. Actually, as gas, I was getting I was getting some abuse from someone on TikTok recently. And the whole vein of the of, of the abuse was that I was kind of talking negatively about temporary people. And I was like, this <laughs> I was waiting, I was just waiting for them to be like, what's your problem with tip people? And I'd be like, um, sorry, no, hold on here a second. So like it's very much kind of um, 
what they perceive based on the very small piece of information that they've that I've given them. Um, so like in that regard, I could have been like, here girl, it's been four years, temporary till I die. Like, you know, it's 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 um it's interesting. So yeah, I don't think I ever read too much into it because they know a snippet of like 25 years of my life. So um I won't give them too much uh, time in my head. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh we mentioned your your dad earlier on and he obviously finished hurling uh, before 95. I, I think you probably have answered this already, but I, I, was that a disappointment? Is it still a, does it still rankle uh, that he missed out on, on, on those glory years, I suppose, for, for player hurling? Um, we've actually spoken about this recently. Um, and I think yeah, it, it definitely did hurt him at the time that he, you know, he was kind of stuck in this like phase afterwards of like being there in Crow Park in 95. And like wanting Claire to win because you know he's he's given his life to Claire Hurling, but at the same time knowing that if Claire win, he's not a part of that group. Yeah. Um, especially when he had been for so long, like he'd been the the captain before Anthony Daly. Um, so I do think it it definitely weighed on him a little bit. Um, kind of what could have been, but he's a, he's a very um he's a very intelligent man. He's very a very compassionate man, and I think he uh, he won't let it kind of sit with him too long. And I think he he could have easily um kind of held a grudge with that and, and not kind of pursued a, a coaching career or even a playing career after that. Um, but like he played until Jesus, he played until was it a year or two before he had his hip replaced? Yeah, something nuts. Um, and he's still coaching, and he would have coached like. He would have coached uh, the Clare under 14s, 15s, 16s and minors and intermediates. Um, and then like even in recent years, he's gone back to, to coach the Clare under 15 B team. Like he just he just lives and breathes hurling. So he definitely didn't let it um, let it kind of affect him for too long. And he has spoken about like, you know, he would have identified as being a hurler or a Clare hurler and then having to kind of change that identity um after you know that that was taken away from him in, in 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 a sense you know i think he probably would have preferred stepping away rather than it being taken yeah. away um but i suppose that's the name of the game i think it's not um you know jerlock lan has that persona you know we're not really surprised at that either are we um so yeah no i think he it probably has also helped him in terms of empathy for for players that he has had to to kind of deal with and like as Claire minor manager and, and that having to drop players and knowing how that feels um, so I definitely think he's probably learned a lot from it as well, which is, has helped him in later years. Yeah, so we've, uh, you've obviously mentioned Gerlach Nair, Seamus Jarrett, your dad. Like, Beekel has a huge history in, in Clare Club Harland. Is the club still a big part of you, of your your identity? Would you consider Fecal GA to be part of you? Um, that's a good question. I've been away from Fecal a long time now. Um, and Hold I on think a minute, you're 25. It's not a long time. A long time. <laughs> since I was 17, a long time. Um I yeah, I think like the GA, it's um like I don't know, AIB a couple of years ago had this one life, one club kind of uh tagline. But I think I am very lucky in that I've been able to immerse myself in other um environments and like Tipperary is one of those so even at times I'm like I'm very kind of uh distant from like the club scene in Tipperary but like I'm like fully immersed in the county scene and you know even at times where like I couldn't tell you half those minor lads clubs because to me they were just part of this team this is the only team um so I think 
I'm lucky in that I've been able to kind of spread my wings and immerse myself deeply in other um in other environments. Um, when I'm I've when I've been a bit older, um, I can only really get experience with fecal um as as a player, and I I didn't have the most positive experience. I actually remember when I was 16, I um I was only speaking about this the other day. I uh I I let a player uh, strike when I was 16. Um. So you're that'll tell you now about some of the politics <laughs> that went on. That's why you're fitting in in Cork so well. We, <laughs> it was warranted that the, we ended up winning the championship afterwards. So I'm going to say, um, but yeah, we definitely had a, a well, I had a rocky experience at a club level, and I definitely felt a lot a very, very lost. Um, and I think a lot of that too is down to I'm a very competitive person by nature and I didn't have the tools to, to make myself a very good player I didn't know how to physically perform or I didn't know how to mentally prepare myself for games and that's why I've kind of gone down that route of study now that if I was to go back playing I'd be a very different player Um. so no I think I'm very lucky in that I'll go to a Clare game or I'll go to whatever game it might be and I'm just like if it's a, if it's a really good game and it's a, if it, both sides are very respectful of one another um then I'm happy with kind of whatever the outcome is so I'm, I'm, I'm like and that's even down here in Cork I, I've definitely been immersed into the Cork kind of club scene as well as county because of working with Red FM um and just being able to to appreciate a good game when you see it and kind of good people when you see them and that's um something I kind of count myself very lucky for because a lot of people are just in one environment and kind of that's all they get to experience whereas I can kind of be a bit of a bandwagoner in in a sense um but i get to kind of experience the positive sides to that very good before we finish up a couple of quick fire questions one word answers will do um any abuse dished out to you back home when you got involved with tip oh plenty god yeah jesus too many to answer the split season is it a good result for the players yes definitely if you could have your choice of job anywhere in the world, what would it be? Um, I have a funny story actually about this, it's temporary relationship, like, give, me, give me two seconds. <laughs> so I remember back when I was a teenager, I filled out this little like magazine thing, I, was, I must have been maybe 13, and it was like dream job, and I, I honestly, I still have it at home, it was like physio for the tips in your herders, I was, I was honestly 13 or 14 in East Clare in, in Fecal, like, and then, um, so a couple of years later, then I was like, I've done physio for the temporary senior footballers. So I think I've that goal achieved. Um, so tick. But uh, now what my dream uh, dream job would be, I'm actually reading Eddie Jones's book at the moment. And for some reason, my dream job at the moment is physio with England. Don't ask me why. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> now you know, now you feel how my family felt when I started working with Tim. <laughs> Uh, could you see yourself taking on a... We can, we can edit that bit out if you want. <laughs> uh, could you see yourself taking on a coaching or managing role in the future? Uh, yes, most definitely. I think I've uh, taken or absorbed a lot. I got to work under Tommy Dunn for a year and it was invaluable. Like So I think I've learned a lot. Like, I hate to, to not pass that on. Okay, uh, Maybe that might answer this question. Best team environment you've ever been involved in? 2018. Tipperary Miners. We got the Ireland semi-final, beat Clare, uh, won the Munster final, got to work with Tommy Dunn. Yeah, it was just brilliant. Best summer in terms of weather as well. So hands down, brilliant. Johnny B or Johnny Snacks? <laughs> was, th was that your I was just gonna say, was that your first time working at Crow Park as well? Um as physio, I, yeah. I, I, as a physio, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I know we lost, but it was a, a yeah. The, the match after, I always say that was the best match I've ever been at because we had a perfect seat as well. The, the Cork and Limerick. Yeah, we were just uh, with the Limerick the subs. Yeah. Yeah, oh, right. it, yeah, it was class. Um, so at the end of it, we'd already forgotten we'd lost. Um, okay, that's Mark, the question. I'm not going to let you away with it. Johnny B or Johnny Snags? <laughs> if they're very different people. It's hard. I'd probably contact Smacks an awful lot more. Okay. Maura Fay or Lauren Giffile? I'm going to have to say myself. <laughs> very good. <laughs> uh, so just before we finish up, uh, All-Ireland winner in Hurling 2021. Oh, that's a, like any other year I'd have an answer for you, but this year I'm just like, it's a complete mental game. If it's it, depending now on the structure of it, if, if it's very short and snappy, I'll say Limerick. Um, if it's drawn out, it could be because I think the, the mental aspect of it will, will definitely come into play and kind of not having an awful lot of time with players. I'll say Limerick, but uh, I'm putting an asterisk beside that, depending when I hear championship structures. Football. We like to put in, we like to put an asterisk beside Limerick All Ireland wins. All right, it's all right. <laughs> uh, football. Oh, I think we'll, we'll definitely see some sort of response from Kerry, but again, I think it depends on on the season. Like Dublin are going to like could sleepwalk that regardless of what the championship structure is. But if it's a kind of more traditional, I would think Kerry are definitely going to have a, a part to play in that. Camogie. Kamogi, let me see. Well, I think Waterford will have a huge save. I don't think they're going to win it. I'd be surprised if there wasn't a response from Cork again this year. I think it's it's indicative that uh, Paddy Murray is still involved, um, and he's pretty much got the, the the same team available to him. Obviously, minus Jim O'Connor. So I think Cork would be uh, would be a, a strong bet. Uh, ladies football. Ladies football again. I think it's all down to championship, but like Dublin, Dublin. <laughs> Mick Bowen has his his team in order there. I know that Shudrick is after getting injured over in Oz, and I'm not sure he'll be too uh, happy about that. Um, but yeah, I think Dublin potentially uh, Mayo. I know that they've gotten their current con players back as well this year, so they probably will have a huge um, say. But I think the championship structure will have a huge impact on a lot of it. A full season with no distractions is very different from a, a kind of a short snappy knockout um yeah yeah will the tipsiner footballers hold on to their crown and monster oh does lightning strike twice i actually i have no recollection of the game versus mayo i was dosed up in hospital so that did not happen <laughs> um and i also i didn't get to watch the monster final because i was also dosed up in hospital <laughs> um God, I'd be, yeah, I think it'd be very hard to replicate it. Um, I think Bloody Sunday definitely played into their motivations on that day, which I very much expected it to. Um, but yeah, as I was saying, I think we're, we're going to be expecting a, a response from Kerry. I don't think anyone's going to be left in their in their wake this year. And the uh, Munster Harland final, we've already, we've already said Limerick. Um... Yeah, I think it'll be Limerick or Waterford. Um, that being said, there's always kind of a question mark over, over Cork. Tipperary again, like they probably bowed out earlier than expected last year. But yeah, like even when you consider the conditions Limerick and Tip played in last year, <laughs> um, it, Jesus, it was biblical. Like I've run down the marina there a couple of times since, and that was only a fraction of what the weather was like that day. So yeah, I think it, again, it, when are the matches going to happen <laughs> is a factor as well, you know. Yeah, a question I forgot to ask you, Jordan, was um, the cross coders obviously is um, big. 
very good for for um, footballers and, and and some hurlers here in in, in the country. Uh, Ash, Ashley McCarthy and Orla Dwyer from Tip are down there. You've the Kellys from the Kellys from Mayo, Cora Staunton, Ashton Sheridan, Sinead Goldrick. You just mentioned she got injured there lately. Uh, do you think that is great for for women in Ireland uh, to get to go to to Australia and, and um, encounter that that sort of environment? Um, in its current state it is because I know those girls are coming back and they're, they're most definitely going to be demanding standards um, in the county setups when they return they'll have experience of what they, they should be experiencing um, I know there is question marks over that season being extended and that will, will bring to an end the, the tradition of players going and coming back um, but I think having experienced kind of on the inside um a senior camogie kind of uh, camp, I think they're, they're, they are being shortchanged. And it's true, no fault of, let's say, the temporary camogie board or anything like that at all. It's just as a result of, of income that's disposable to them. But I think if the opportunity is there for them to go and play um, and be appropriately reimbursed for that, um, then more power to them. Um, it's up to the LGFA and Camogie Association to raise the game here. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think fair play to them. If I, I'm extremely jealous. I'd love to be, I like, I'd love to be Sarah Rowe, line for Collingwood. It would be class. Um, you can see kind of what that's done for her, for her profile and kind of, she's a, she's a great person. Right? You know, these are all great people. I'm very jealous of them, especially when they're able to live it up in Australia now and we're not. You know, it looks great. It looks great. Uh, Lauren Goodfile, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. We kept you longer than, than I thought we would, but uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was excellent. And thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's all we have time for this week, folks, on the Premier View podcast. Thanks a million to Lauren Goodfile for coming all the way from Fecal to meet myself and Marty. And we'll see you all next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.